Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel, and I am one of the pastors here at Res City. Uh, thankful to have you uh, with us this morning. Um, I know where it's it's like every every January we get to it, and it's like, oh yeah, it gets really cold here. And today is like one of those days where you're like, oh yeah, that's right. It it sucks to live in Minnesota sometimes, and today is this great uh, reminder of that. But I'm thankful to have you uh, joining us this Sunday morning, regardless. Um, uh, let me uh, pray for us, and then we're going to hop into our message this morning. Lord, thank you for bringing us together into the warmth of each other's presence, um, the warmth of your presence and your love, God, uh, on this cold Sunday morning. I pray that as we uh, spend time uh, together worshiping, as we spend time together um, uh, gathering in community, as we spend time together um, considering your word, Lord, considering what it looks like to be a disciple of your son, Jesus, that you would be, you'd be with us, Lord. You'd help us to, uh, as we're going to talk about today, to, to know you better um, so that we may grow and we may go and we may do, do it all together. Lord, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So uh, a phrase that I heard, I, I have no clue where I heard this, or who said it or anything, but it's something that has kind of always stuck with me. You know, sometimes you hear like a little uh, kitschy phrase and it just really kind of sticks in your brain as something really helpful to describe whatever. One of those for me is this phrase I heard once that human history is falling off of one side of horse and getting back on the horse and then falling off the other. That's just one way you can describe the whole course of human history is, is overcorrecting uh, from our last mistake and then having to uh, fix that and then finding ourselves overcorrecting from that. And it's just like a, a giant game of ping pong throughout human history uh, going through all of this stuff. And I just think it's a really good uh, way to describe human nature where we, we have some idea or some goal and we maybe lean towards that side, but we realize that it causes us to fall off and find ourselves in some sort of trouble for some reason. And so we're very afraid of having that happen again when we get back on the horse, but what we do is lean too far to the other side and end up falling off the other way instead of being able to really try to find good balance between both sides of whatever it is that we're talking about. And I think that that concept or that, that picture is really helpful for us as we think about human nature and as we really talk through some of these things that we're going through in this uh, series that we're in right now. Um, we're in a series called No Grow Go Together. And really what it is is it's a way for us to kind of kick off 2024 uh, talking about the discipleship journey of those who follow Jesus. Um, it's as cl clear and concise a way as we can describe what discipleship is. A disciple is someone who knows God. They're choosing and continuing to follow Jesus. They're growing. They're bearing Christ-like fruit. They're going. They're serving, and they're inviting others to know and grow and go, and we're doing it all together in community. That's kind of the manner or how we're doing it. Um, and I think a disciple is someone who is trying to draw all of these parts of following Jesus out into their life. And so that's why we use that language here at Res City. We use it as something of an encouragement to you, as a way for you to categorize what you're doing as you follow Jesus, as a way for us to sort of describe what we're doing as a church, trying to fit it into one of those different things. And I think the, the thing is that we can sometimes forget the way that we can maybe fall off the horse on one side or the other is that all of these is meant to be drawn out fully for a full, robust, healthy discipleship. And I kind of want this series for us to meditate on each of these uh, concepts to be sort of foundational for us as, as we kind of use it as something that we can maybe go back to if you ever want to uh, kind of understand better what the life of a disciple and then also build off of in the future. 
And I think it's important for us to, to remember that uh, if you're only doing one or two of these, or you're even doing half of one of these, we'll kind of talk about the way you can break up the word no today in this sermon, um, you're not really doing full discipleship. But the goal for us, the point of faith is to do full discipleship. It's not just that we uh, believe a message so we can go to heaven someday, and in the meantime, we maybe try to do one thing a little bit well. But the, the point of faith is to be a healthy disciple now who also has hope in the future. And so while we wait for the future, the good future that we have, that we believe that God has offered to us in his son Jesus, uh, we are focusing in the present on how can we draw out discipleship in ourselves as well as possible. Okay? And so last week what we did, to kind of kick the whole series off, we kind of talked about what I think is really the linchpin or foundation of all of this. And this is no part one. And if you didn't hear the message last week, we spent some time in John chapter 3, where a man named Nicodemus, who's a well-respected, credentialed, authoritative teacher, full of knowledge, comes to Jesus. And what we find is the kind of knowing that Nicodemus has was that this head knowledge, this, this stuff that he had learned, this, this facts and information, were not the type of knowing that were going to initially get him into the kingdom of God. Instead, Jesus tells him about the, what we call the new birth, this uh, emotional awareness, this under, coming to understand that God has done something in my heart, that he's done something not just for the world, he's not just died for the world, he's not just come to save the world, but he's come to save me. He's come for me. He doesn't just love the world, he loves me. He wants me to follow him. And we talked about how that emotional awareness can be described in, in, as a relationship between a, a father and a child, using the language of, of, of Abba that Jesus uses and that his disciples continue to use. And so it all comes back to, to God's work, his creation, and our coming to awareness of what God has done. Right? We talked about, if you want to phrase it this way, how we know God with our heart. That's where it, everything starts in the journey of discipleship. But that doesn't mean it's not necessary for us to have a, you know, for, for a robust and God-honoring faith to also include using our minds and growing those in robust ways as well. Because I think knowing only in the sense that we talked about last week, if that's all we do, can lead us to fall off of one side of the horse, right? And, and what we need to do is sort of find some balance in this, uh, to avoid falling off the horse on either side, but to really remain uh, centered on it. And that means that we have to be people who know God with our minds. So today, we're talking about know, kind of part two. And I, and I want to leave you with this statement. Among other things, a disciple is someone who is growing with their minds. A disciple is someone who is growing with their minds. Now let's start here in, in Mark chapter 12, where Jesus says this in verse 30. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, now notice that Jesus draws out all of these different parts of what makes us human. He's saying that we're unified wholes as people. And what it means for us to dedicate ourselves to God is to not just pick one of these things, but to pick all of them and dedicate them to, to God in love. We could call this loving God or dedicating God with our head, our mind, our heart, and our hands, or our strength. The way, and, and I think the, 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 Jesus talking about us as a unified wholeness way really does paint an accurate picture of how humans are, right? Think about this. This is just a minor example. Think about something, like if you think about something that makes you really angry, 
We do this a lot, <laughs> probably, right? Where we're just, we have some time on our hands or we're, we're doom scrolling on our phones and we're just thinking about something that makes us really angry. It's something you saw on the news. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a friend who you feel betrayed you in some way or just drives you nuts. Uh, maybe it's that the Vikings fooled you once again to make you think that they had a shot of doing something, you know, even, even somewhat exciting. And you're just thinking about it, right? You're turning it over in your head over and over again. You're thinking about the problem. You're thinking about ways you could fix it. Um, maybe trying to decide what to do next. But notice as you simmer in that, as you think about it, it's not just something that's happening in your brain. But there's something that's taking place in the rest of your body as well. You start to feel stress, right? You start to feel panicked. Uh, Time starts to speed up. You start to think about how uh, urgent it is that you solve this problem now. And your body starts to engage in fight or flight. Your heart rate goes up. Your breathing increases. You start to feel maybe claustrophobic, Right? And I think this is just a picture of how our mind, our heart, and our body are all connected. There's like a chain linking these all together, and so where one goes, the other follows. And so Jesus mentions that a full disciple is someone who is intentional with all the parts of themselves to dedicate them to God, knowing that they're all linked anyway. Right? Humans are in body holes, and so God wants disciples to offer all of themselves to him. It wouldn't be full discipleship without doing it. And that includes, as we're talking about today, our mind. Now, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans says something similar. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind you will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Okay, So he says, in what you do uh, with your embodied existence, give that over to God, dedicate it to him. Okay, But now he transitions to another part of us in verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So this vision that Paul has of a disciple is someone who's given themselves to God and who is being transformed, not just in what they do with their bodies, with their hands and their feet, where they go, uh, what they do with them, but in how they think. Right? So the vision for a disciple is not someone who has stopped thinking. It's someone whose thinking has been transformed to discern God's will, to direct what we do with our bodies. Right? And I think this is interesting because when we talk about this idea of maybe discerning God's will for our life, a lot of times what we're thinking about is our feelings. Right? We're, we're asking ourselves, well, what, what, is I, what do I feel God is leading me to do? That's how I'm going to de- determine what God's will is for me. We use our emotions maybe, what feels right to us to discern that. But in reality, and I think we see this here in Romans, Romans 12, that discerning God's will has to do with our minds, has to do with discerning and having our minds transformed into what would please God, what would be uh, glorifying to him, what would lead to uh, redemption and restoration in the situation that we're in, whatever it looked like. To know God's will means to think with a transformed mind. And we see pictures of people like this so often in the scriptures. It's the call for those who read uh, the wisdom books in the Old Testament, for example. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Psalms. Meditating on wisdom is supposed to change your mind and make you think in a wise way. That's a way that will honor God. That's the whole vision for those wisdom books. And in Psalm 1, meditation on the law of God makes us righteous. That's what the the psalm says there. 
And when we consider the gift of the different doctrines we've inherited, perhaps, or the beliefs that we've been given, we start to understand words that are thrown around by theologians like justification and think about how it impacts my day-to-day life, or where we consider deep questions like, uh, what does true and proper worship look like? When we really think about those things, we are becoming people who are using our minds to worship God as well. And the point is to produce a mature and healthy embodied follower of Jesus where all of them is being made new. Not just their hands where they're doing Christ-like deeds, perhaps, but from a heart that merely wants to look righteous. Or maybe uh, serving just with our minds where we're correct maybe in our thinking, but we're cold and unaware of God's love for ourselves and for others. And not just for our hearts, where we're, uh, where we're unthinking and mindless and anti-intellectual. All of these are, are ways in which Christians fall off the horse in one way or another, right? But the goal is for us to find balance between all of these things, and especially with our minds, where we may be transformed so we can discern, direct our bodies, direct our hearts to go in a way that is going to truly honor and follow Jesus. Now, there are lots of different ways that Christians can grow with their minds. Here's a little list of different ways in which uh, people engage with their minds to, to grow uh, and worship God and help others do the same. Maybe it's biblical study, maybe it's, it's theology, maybe it's ethics and morality, you know, questions of what should we do, like what, what should we do, how should we navigate the world, engaging cultural and, and current events. Um, maybe it's in philosophy, understanding the deep questions of the world, or it's in apologetics, offering a defense of the faith or helping us to understand why we believe what we do and why it's not just a completely irrational thing, but there's actually a lot of uh, wisdom to it. And there's lots of Christians that are professionals in these, right? A lot of the stuff that we do as Christians is kind of built on the the work of those who've dedicated themselves vocationally to do these things in different um, maybe seminaries or professionally as writers or authors, right? A lot of the stuff that we do at Res City, I'm just be honest with you, a lot of what makes uh, uh, the sermons that I put together on a week-to-week basis are are built off of the work of, of people doing this with their minds, Right? And sometimes we might be called to go dedicate ourselves vocationally in some way to this as well, to bless the church with what can come from uh, dedicating to growing our minds and the minds of others who follow Jesus. But that's not everybody's path, I realize. And, and you don't need to be a scholar to love God with your mind. Okay? We can do it in our day-to-day lives. Whatever it is that we're called to do, we can be people who love God with our minds as well. We just have to be prepared sometimes that dedicating our minds to God will work up a mental sweat from time to time. And that's a good thing. So what I want to do for the rest of the sermon is I want to talk about some of the some different sources that we can have to grow our minds into transformation in the way that Paul talks about here. And we're going to kind of go through them and kind of talk about ways in which sometimes we uh, we need to balance these together to avoid falling off the horse uh, one way or another, okay? So here's what those things are that I want to talk about. First of all, we're going to start talking with secular higher education, learning, and science. Second, we're going to talk church tradition. Third, we're going to talk individual reason. Fourth, we'll talk about community, and then finally we'll end kind of with the most foundational piece of all these with Scripture, okay? And we're going to frame these in kind of uh, three different do's and two don'ts, okay? You can kind of think about it in do's and don'ts, all right? So let's start with, with the first one um, in a place I think maybe you might not expect if, if you're a Christian today, but I think that's one that is still important for us to consider, and that's that we should be people who don't fear the insights that things like science and other secular wisdom can offer us, right? Um, 
in growing with our hearts and minds. I know many of us have uh, found there to be so much blessing in our lives and maybe in ways that help us to follow Jesus well from what we have learned from places of higher learning. There are, are a lot of people here I know who, who either work in education spaces or have spent a lot of time in education spaces, right? There's lots of wisdom in the wor- you know, that is out there in the world that is not specifically Christian that can help us to know, grow, go, to better, right? Things like psychology, right? Where we're understanding humans better. Or sociology, where we're understanding human society better. Or history, where we understand our past better. Or the study of literature, where we can understand how to read the Bible better, right? Science and places of higher learning, where, where these types of things are studied and researched and learned, can help us to grow in our own faith. And, and it have produced some of the greatest gifts that the church could receive, I think, in enhancing our minds to be disciples of Jesus. They, they help us to understand the world around us better. They help us to understand ourselves better. They give us technology that we can use to worship God better. All for the greater good to be applied in all kinds of field, fields, including faith. And while, you know, this doesn't mean that there's no ways in which we could critique modern you know, science or, 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 or higher places of higher learning today. My point is that the whole world respects the good that comes out of these spaces and sees them as good. But weirdly, a lot of Christians struggle with that. I don't know if you found this to be the case, or maybe you even see it in yourself sometime, that Christians can seem to be sort of threatened or scared of these things. And so instead, we kind of live a lot of times as a church with a a posture of sort of conflict and fear of these things, right? Now, on the one hand, it's not completely uh, undeserved, right? There is some hostility, I think, but towards our faith that by people in the academy and people who study science. And I think we have, that is true, okay? We, we, We can acknowledge that's true. And, and something called, I think, scientism, which is a, you know, a belief that science has become a sort of God that we can almost worship, that it's destroyed all other gods, it's made anything else other than itself irrelevant, is a thing that is believed by some outside the church. And remember what Paul says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. So we need to have caution in that. Right? We can't replace faith in Jesus with, with something else. But I think we shouldn't fear, we shouldn't try to start a fight. Consider what Paul says in in, in verse 17 of Romans 12. Don't pay back anyone for their evil actions with evil actions, but show respect for what everyone else believes is good. It's possible for Christians to acknowledge things that are good outside of the church and to use it as a way to help us to follow Jesus better. There's nothing wrong with doing that. If you want to dig into this more, there's a great book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by an evangelical historian named Mark A. Noel, and he sort of recounts how the church has gotten to this place um, and has rejected, in a lot of ways, a robust life of the mind and their discipleship for fundamentalist thinking. Um, it was a sort of one side of the horse that the church has fallen off of a lot in the last hundred years or so. And we don't need to really get into it, but what we find is a lot of fear uh, and the culture war that we find ourselves living in now kind of grows out of this too. But the thing is, is that fear and anger, which so many Christians, I think, live in t- towards the, the society that we live in s- so much today, these are not indicators of God's presence, right? If we find ourselves constantly feeling fear and anger, we should be asking ourselves, are we really following after Jesus? Is God's presence really with us? Is this, if this is the main fruit that has been growing out of us in relation to our culture, 
And I think a lot of Christians who maybe have started here uh, with, and started this fundamentalist thinking and maybe maintain it into the present day, their hearts might be in the right place, but I think that they've neglected the fact that what God starts in our hearts, this new birth that we talked about last week, is supposed to overflow out of our hearts into our minds and transform and fuel how we think, okay? Not just what we feel, like in the vision of Jesus and Paul that we've talked about here. And I think this kind of uh, uh, living our discipleship purely out of our heart cuts us off from our history as a church, which largely has embraced the benefits of things like science um, and, and, and higher learning outside of the church as, as gifts that be given. In fact, it's where uh, so, much, so much of modern science and modern academic learning came out of the church and the desire to honor God with their mind, that that's literally where they started here in the West. It wouldn't have been possible without Christians who, with transformed minds, believed in a God who formed the world according to a certain order and gave them cause to go and study the world. And in reality, there's so much in our history as a church, like studying those figures, that are going to benefit the growth of our minds here in the present today, too. Okay, so let's move into the second source of learning that I want to talk about today. Okay, do draw on the wisdom of those who've gone before us. Okay. Do draw on the wisdom of those who've gone before us. The tradition of the church is not just there for us to sort of demean and think we're better than in some way and we can grow beyond it, but to help to guide us towards truth in the way that God has been guiding the church towards truth throughout its entire history. James K.A. Smith uh, puts it this way. I love this quote. I just think there's something spiritually renewing and powerful for the church today to realize that it's older than your youth pastor. I think there's something about apprenticing ourselves to the history of what the Spirit has done in the church over these millennia that gives us a healthy distance from our own contemporary immersion. I also think it gives us hope when you realize that the church has been faithful, that Christ has been reigning and leading in circumstances that are more dire than ours, and I hope that would give us this posture of hopeful witness to the world around us. I think there's, there's a modern, and it's not just a Christian attitude, that history and tradition are things that we don't really need. Um, it's just this old stuffy thing that you know we've outgrown, and we get to do the fun and exciting task of making it up as we go, right? We sort of detach ourselves from everything that's come before us and sort of, uh, you know, because we're smarter and more enlightened or more in touch with our feelings or what we desire than anyone that's come before us, we ought to just do what we want to do, right? We make it up as we go, chart our own path, be trailblazers of our own future. And what what it really does is it leaves us sort of constantly just trying to make everything up as we go, instead of realizing that there have been so many people that have gone before us that have thought through and lived through the same types of situations that we have and have left for us a sort of uh, witness of what it could be like for us to manage the same type of situations uh, in a wise way as well. Uh, Social psychologist Jonathan Haidt calls this view, this modern view that we have that I just described, wisdom deprivation disorder. That says, in order to live a full human life, you, can, you can't just invent everything yourself, is what he says. You have, we all come from some tradition, right? 
our family is some tradition that we come out of. The church that we're a part of comes out of a tradition, etc., right? And you can, you can change it. It doesn't mean that we can never sort of change or reform these traditions that we're part of, but we have to realize that we, are, we have something that binds and forms us, and it's an overcorrection. It's falling off the horse on one side uh, to say that we can just reject all of that or we don't need it. In fact, what we're doing is we're, we're sort of cutting off sources of wisdom that can help us in the moment, and we're foolish. We're not thinking well not to use it. So we as a church here at Res City, we're part of a tradition. Uh, we're part of the Baptist tradition, which in our specific strain of that tradition comes from something called pietism, which extends back further to the Lutheran Church in Germany, which was formed out of the Protestant Reformation, uh, which itself was a movement aimed at being faithful to the roots of the earliest church at the very beginning. To think that there's nothing in that whole train of our lineage of tradition that I just described that can be offered to us and that we can learn nothing from that is, is, is such a, a high a degree of folly and pride, right? And it is, it, it, it's something that we should see as a benefit to us, not something to detach ourselves from. Now, having said all that, let's realize that if we go too far, it's possible to once again fall off the horse another way. Notice what Paul says in Romans 12 too. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And this is where we're going to talk a little bit about our own ability to individually reason through things. Because the whole idea is that you learn to think critically, scripturally, and Christ-like about your life and faith. That's the vision that Paul is talking about here. And so the don't, the, number, the second don't I want to talk about here is don't just settle for being told what to do so that you can avoid thinking. In a book called The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory by an author named Tim Alberta, he writes about an issue at a major evangelical Christian college, I think sort of shows what can happen if we rely too much on tradition to where it's, we're just unthinkingly letting, us, letting it tell us what to do. Um, he, he writes that one former professor at this, uh, at this college noted that the people being produced by it were basically brainwashed by being told what to do, and especially what that looked like was being told how to vote and, and fight in the, the modern culture wars. And there's a, there a professor that came in, a guy named Aaron Warner, who felt called by God to come in and try to change that. And so he took over teaching classes in the honors program. And for the book, he tells, he tells us that The 700 or so students in the honors program were even brighter than he'd expected. These are smart people. Uh, Many had chosen the school over the Ivy League, and the average SAT scores of his students were higher than those at Harvard. These students were training for careers in every vocation imaginable from medicine to ministry. Their futures were limitless. Werner spotted just one dilemma. Lots of these kids came to the school from white, conservative, evangelical households, and they had never challenged their own assumptions, and I mean never. So he set to work trying to change that by introducing discussion and debate within the classes, challenging the tradition of the school, challenging evangelical tradition, and even the founder of the school, someone who's very revered there. The only thing that was off limits and above reproach was Jesus himself. And Werner told the students that he was continually finding flaws in his own argumentation and conclusions, and they should find some too. This invitation to open searching, potentially subversive inquiry, inquiry, was entirely foreign to most of these students. And here's the thing. 
they revered him for it. He became one of the most popular professors on campus because he was encouraging people to think for themselves, to think critically. I think there's, the, the truth is, as humans, we love to learn. We love to use our minds to glorify God when we actually get a chance to do it. I think there's very little that's more exciting than using our brains to grow in a way that is, is organic and is, is, is something we're taking ownership over. It's a really exciting, fun thing for us to do. And we don't get to do that when we just go along doing what we're told without thinking about it. In 2 Corinthians, I think we see a great example of the Apostle Paul uh, talking about how this is his vision as well for his own leadership over the churches that he started. Um, what he tells them in 2 Corinthians 1, 24, something that I've thought a lot about in terms of what I'm doing as a pastor here at Res City. He says, uh, that does not mean that we want to dominate you by telling you how to put your faith into practice. We want to work together with you so that you will be full of joy, for it is by your own faith that you stand firm. He's saying that I don't want, it's not my job to domineer your faith, to oversee it and do it for you by telling you what to do in every situation, but I want to work with you so that for your own joy, you can stand firm in your own faith. Now, I think what this represents is true Christian maturity, taking ownership over your own faith and experiencing the joy of growing in a transformed mind to follow Jesus better. That doesn't mean that Paul or other Christian leaders are not going to teach or guide or direct. I think it's important for leaders uh, to, to sketch out what is most important, to equip people towards that, to use gifts of, of teaching and leadership to sort of help their flock become uh, disciples of Jesus. But it's never their faith, right? It's yours, and so that means you need to take ownership over it. All a leader can do is equip you. And so at Rest City, we, we often say this, we don't want to just tell you what to do. We want to teach you how to think. This is one of our, like, our, our core values at Rest City, is to try to teach you how to think instead of just telling you what to do in every situation. I truly don't think that me getting up here on a Sunday morning and telling you, here's what you ought to do, here's what it would look like for you to do something uh, in a way that honors God and not teach you how to think about it well, is to leave you totally immature, to leave you unequipped to leave you stuck in, the, in the, the sort of immaturity that I think Romans 12 is challenging us away from. Right? I've used this analogy before, but I'm going to use it again here. When you're a kid, right, it's good for you to maybe not use scissors. Right? It's good for there to be a rule that says uh, don't use scissors because you might hurt yourself with it. You don't know how to use these yet. So for now, the rule is don't use this thing. But is it, should it be our goal for someone to become an adult and to still have to have that rule that says you can't use these scissors? No. The goal is for people to grow up to be able to use scissors because scissors, while dangerous, are also really great things that we can use for all kinds of wonderful things like, I guess, you know, scissors are kind of running out of use in a world where everything is done on computers. Just go with me here, right? Learning how to use scissors would, would be a representation of someone who is mature. And I think a lot of times we have Christians who are told um, anything outside of this very narrow band of approved tradition is off limits. You can't read it. Is keeping people stuck in a sort of immaturity then, rather than letting them grow and be able to discern 
for themselves, right? When we tell people, you have to vote this way, or you have to think this way, or you have to do faith in this very specific way, we're actually leaving, it, leaving them stuck in immaturity. Because the truth is, Christian faith is so much larger than any one tradition. There's so much that we can learn from reading other Christians, even if they're not part of our tradition in some way, that while, yes, sometimes it's good for us to maybe put some, some guidelines on and say, like, maybe avoid this thing. Uh, this is not going to be helpful for you. The goal is for you to get there to be able to discern that for yourself. The goal is for us to be people who can use scissors, and that's what we're trying to produce at Rest City in our community. All right, now that leads me to our, our next uh, do here, our second do in, in, in this, is do learn all of this alongside the community of the church. I think there's really something powerful and formative for us as Christians where we're around others who are on a regular basis, who are also pursuing Christ-likeness, where all of our differences and gifts and perspectives and experiences are coming together to help us all to grow in maturity. Okay? The church kind of in, in, in that situation becomes like a cohort or a school where we're all learning together and having our minds transformed uh, with one another. Right? And I won't say a ton about this because we're going to do, to round out this series, we're going to do two sermons on the value and importance of doing all of this together. But let me say just a couple things specifically as they relate to our topic today. The first thing is I think we can find ourselves, maybe we are very committed to learning and growing in the way that I'm talking about today, but we, but we do it all in silos, Right? Maybe we just do it uh, by you know, watching videos or looking at little bite-sized posts on TikTok or Twitter, or we're watching YouTube videos or listening to podcasts completely siloed off from anybody else, reading books, but we're just doing it on our own. What we never get to do is experience the value of testing what we're learning in community and getting healthy pushback to what it is we're learning, to, to see if what we're learning and how we're processing through it actually makes sense within a community and makes sense to other people whose minds are being transformed as well. Right? And I think another issue can arise from this also in that it's possible to take what I just said, right, to make your faith your own, that leads you to fall off the horse on the other side. Because we live in a world that is constantly pushing us towards independence. It's saying you don't need anybody else. You can do everything on your own, right? And, and, and we extend that to think, well, I don't need a church. I don't need a community of people to help me to do this in any way. But look what Paul says here in Romans 12, verse 3. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think that you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. Uh, we are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. I think to have a mindset that we can grow and we can learn about God, we can have our minds transformed to be fully devoted disciples of Jesus without other people is prideful to the point of sin, I would even say. Because an individualized faith allows for no skepticism of yourself, right? It pays no attention to our propensity to ignore our blind spots and the way in which sin and delusion can creep in to convince us that we don't need to be challenged in our thinking. We're missing honest evaluation of ourselves, which is something that's very necessary for real growth. Because the truth is, learning and growing 
in our, in our knowledge is always going to tempt us to think we're smarter than everybody else. And we don't need other people. It's a very naive and self-serving way to try and grow, I'd say. And I think it's tempting because it allows us to be comfortable all the time. To live in this fantasy land that I'm smarter than everybody else and I don't need them. But being in a community reminds us that that's not the way it is. We can't grow fully in our minds if we aren't having them sharpened with the minds of others regularly. And listening to podcasts or reading books is great. I encourage you to do that. Again, take ownership over your faith. But it's not the same as doing that without the benefit of doing it with others. Right? And as a church, we want to offer different ways for you to do this. We have things like Views and Brews. We're going to be doing that tomorrow night. Um, I would love to talk with you about things that you're learning. Right? I would love to, literally, I will take you out. To, I will pay for a lunch or dinner or coffee for you to just walk through stuff you're learning, to give you a chance to bounce things off of me. Uh, Julie would do the same. I know our elders, our leadership team at Res City would love to do this with you. Your community group leaders to do it with you, even just re- your regular friends at Red City, right? Take every opportunity that you have to talk through the kinds of things that you're learning in and growing in with other people in the faith, because that is the thing that's going to help you to really grow far more than cutting yourself off from them. Don't be deceived. Don't let yourself be deceived in thinking that we don't need each other to really do this thing that, that, that the, uh, Jesus and Paul is calling us to do. Okay? What I'm saying is that even though it is our faith, we also need guidelines and signposts to help us along the way. Right? And tradition and science and leadership community, these things we've talked about so far, all do this along with this very last and I think most primary and essential piece. Right? And that leads us to our last do of the sermon. Do immerse yourself in Scripture. Do immerse yourself in Scripture. Because we're not just growing our minds for growing's sake. But we're, there's a goal to it, for, the tra- for transformation into Christ-likeness. And Scripture is the revelation of God to lead us there. Scripture is an authority. It is something that's been given to us by God. It's God's very word for us to lead us and focus us in on that goal. Now, in Romans 14 and 15, I won't read it. It's a, it's a long passage, and we don't have time to go through it all today. But it's really interesting to me because this section of Romans that we talked about here in chapter 12 kind of kicks off a much more practical part of the book. The first eight chapters are, are much more theological, trying to you know, help us to understand some, con- some concepts about the way in which God works in the world and what that means for us. Um, but from 12 to the rest of the, to the end of the book is much more practical and talks about how we put this into practice in our communities. And in chapters 14 and 15, Paul talks about a very contentious, very lived issue for the church in Rome, which is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and how they're going to treat each other. It was a very complex issue, and, and to navigate it required lots of thought. It required people to use their brains, right? And Paul gives a very theologically robust and coherent argument for why they ought to welcome one another in the same way that Jesus has welcomed each of them, that that ought to be their posture towards each other instead of dividing over these sacred cows that they're fighting over of the Jewish food law. Paul's point is to keep Jesus as the beating heart of this very practical issue. And what's really interesting, I think, as Paul tries to make this argument, he quotes a ton of scripture at them, right? In the span of a chapter and a half, he quotes five different passages of scripture to try to help him to make this point, okay? 
the point I want to make here is that someone who's growing, whose mind is being transformed, is not someone who's rejecting time spent in God's word, but someone who is immersed in it, who knows it, and it comes out of them naturally when they think and when they reason uh, with, with themselves and others. I think that's the goal that we have to be shooting for, and we need scripture as our starting and our ending point to be filled with wisdom to understand God and what it means to love him with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. Now, I confess that this is hard to do sometimes, to, to immerse ourselves in scripture on a regular basis. In the busy world that we live in is a challenge, and if I would be lying if I were up here telling you that I do this great every day, every week, right? We just had, we just had a baby, it's hard to find time to do stuff like that, okay? I understand that we live busy lives, but I think it is so worth it for us to find ways to immerse ourselves in Scripture because we have to understand how pivotal that is for us to grow in the way that we're talking about today. Um, we discover in Scripture again and again the contours of true discipleship to the God revealed to us in Jesus. And the th- wonderful thing about Scripture is that uh, it's not something that you have to be an expert in to learn about. Uh, I think we can sort of uh, think that there's a level of knowledge or skill that we need to have to understand the Bible for it to have some bearing on us. And I think while it is good for us to grow in our understanding of Scripture, you know, to, to take the wisdom, again, of those who are in the academy, who are studying it, using maybe the tools of the modern academy to help us to understand it better. Scripture is something that we can all open and read and have God speak to us in. There's a great quote. Uh, the uh, author is unknown on this, but it, they say, The scriptures are like water in which an elephant can swim and a lamb can wade. The most clever can study them, and the simplest can learn within it what is necessary for them. No matter your level of knowledge or skill in understanding the Bible, you can read it and glean something from God in it. Because here's the thing about Scripture, is it is not reading Scripture in a, in a way that I think desires to have God speak to us. It's not a passive thing, right? We are not reading the Scripture, if, if we're doing this right, so much as Scripture is reading us. If we're allowing ourselves to be shaped by Scripture, okay? Uh, allowing it to... Uh, penetrate our minds, to transform our hearts. Um, While it is an old book, it is also still alive by God's Spirit. And that gives us reason to go back to it over and over again. And I think it also challenges us against the idea uh, uh, that we don't need Scripture because we find ourselves to be so familiar with it. I think this is a real danger uh, for, for us who have been immersed in Scripture, maybe our whole lives, maybe you've grown up in the church, to, to sort of think uh, you've learned it all. You know it all already. To think that you are so familiar with Scripture that you can't go back to it and have your mind and heart shaped by it again and again. That there's not depths to it that could lead a whole life could be lived uh, studying it and not still find new things in it every time. I think uh, Dallas Willard has a great quote that familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, which breeds contempt, right? The idea that we don't need it. I think it can be easy to find ourselves like that with Scripture instead of realizing that because God is still speaking in it, because there's so, there's so much depth to it, we can always be learning something new from it. We can't let Scripture become so familiar that we are contemptible of it. Now to close here, as I wrap up, I want to just leave you with this. When it's working right, I think learning is a form of healing. 
Christopher Gares, he's a seminary professor up at, at Bethel University, he writes that in education as much as any other realm, the mission is the same. What was broken is being made whole. What was sick is being healed. Maybe if you work in education in some way, you find that that is true. You can, people can find themselves healed in some way through growing in education. And the same is absolutely true for us as followers of Jesus. We talk a lot in the church about how emotionally and spiritually we are healed in our brokenness by God and his gospel. But the thing is, learning where our minds are transformed is also a form of healing what is broken too. When learning in a form of transformation in the way that Paul and Jesus are talking about is happening, we become people who are healed, not just in our hearts, but in our minds. And that flows out of us into the communities that we're part of, where there's healing happening in our relationships with people. And when it's not, a lot of times we find healing is not taking place. When we're not learning, healing can't really take place. I think it's really important for us to uh, consider the importance of learning if we're going to find healing in our relationships with ourselves, or with, sorry, with, with God and with other people. So I want to leave you with this question as we trans- transition into a time of, of worship and communion. Am I trying to learn? And if I am trying to learn, am I trying to learn to have my mind be transformed, to be more like Jesus? And if so, is it producing the spiritual fruit of healing, or is it not? That might be a a form of correction against us in the learning that we're doing if we're not seeing healing taking place. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll enter into a time of communion. This is an opportunity for us to uh, come uh, and and, 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 uh, partake in Christ's body, which is broken, and which his blood, which is shed for us. Um, a, A form of remembrance of what he has done for us, a tuning of our hearts and minds back to the thing that is at the center of everything. Jesus come to give himself for us, to die on a cross, and to make us new in our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strength. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you want to heal us, Lord. And you do it in all sorts of different ways by calling us to follow you with our hearts, with our, with our strength, but also with our minds, God. I pray that we would not neglect the importance of growing in our minds, growing in our thinking, so that we may be people who are fully uh, devoted disciples of your son Jesus, God. I pray that we would not neglect the importance of using our minds to do that, but also, Lord, keep us from only learning and growing with our minds, Lord, and neglecting to grow in those other areas as well, God. Keep us finding a a good balance in all of these things so that we may be people who are fully growing in transformed uh, hearts and souls and minds and strength, Lord. We ask you uh, to do this in us, God, as a church and all of us individually, in your son's name. Amen.